0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach and Marketing at the Naval Institute. Joining me for another history episode of the podcast is the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. It's been too long.
1: Salutations, Ward. It's was uh, to
0: say we just did one. This is sort of like Proceedings TV we got going on here on our YouTube channel. So mm-hmm. we'll remind the listeners who may be consuming the podcast the usual way, which is the audio way, that we're also on YouTube with each and every episode of the podcast. This is the fifth episode we've done that is cross posted on YouTube. But further, this is the second one we've done that we're actually live streaming this one. And uh, so very happy to, uh, to have folks ask questions in the chat. And we have our producer, Heather, will be curating the questions and we'll be folding those into the discussions as relevant. Uh, we did this last one with uh, with a great question from a guy named Adam. So it's exciting, and we're very happy to be up YouTube and doing this this way. So what is happening at Naval History Magazine?
1: Well, like I told you recently, uh, the December issue is on the newsstands now, and um, we're getting a lot of good feedback on it. Um, there it is right there. Look at that gorgeous cover. 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and we cover um, a number of other aspects of the early phase of the war when things just weren't going our way in the Pacific quite yet. Um, and the Pacific, of course, is in the news in our own time, is it not? And so I'm really thrilled that uh, as we're sort of boldly going where uh, no um, proceedings podcasts have gone before today with these live ones, to be able to have one of those ones be the first prize winner of this year's CNO Naval History Essay Contest. Um, We're very pleased to have Dr. Corbin Williamson with us to talk about his prize winning article. Um, Dr. Williamson is uh, an Associate Dean at the Air War College where he uh, focuses on strategy in World War II. And the prize winning article this year, the prize winning essay, excuse me, uh, was up against almost 100 other ones. And it was a very good panel of historians who judge these things so this is a good piece folks and uh, if you haven't read it you're going to want to there's quite a lot of applied history in this one Um, it's about uh, British US and Australian uh, naval exercises that were conducted off of Japan in 1947 and they yielded valuable training and um, lessons about inter-allied cooperation what have you that um, are very relevant today so Corbin welcome aboard
2: well, Eric and Ward, thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. Uh, and I'll just say up front uh, to get it out of the way that uh, the comments that I share today are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. government.
0: Noted with extreme not. pleasure. I thought we, <laughs> we had you on thinking you were going to represent the Department of Defense. I know. Oh, well, <laughs> let's go we're, ahead. Anyway. We'll just go ahead and do it. Yes, since we're all yeah. here. Because it's uh, a
1: fascinating yeah. article. Let's talk about it anyway. Yeah. So, um, Corbin, why don't you just set the table for us? Tell us about uh, this article. Tell us. Tell us the story of this for those who haven't read it yet. And um, maybe a little bit about, especially a, a lot about actually the uh, resonance of this in our current geopolitical climate. I'll dive right in. How did you come up with this story in the first place? Was it the relevance that grabbed you? I mean, the contest was about great power competition. And so this gave you something to work with on that.
2: Yeah, so I ran across the reports for these exercises while I was working on my dissertation and looking at um, exercises the U.S. Navy does with the uh, British, Canadians, and Australians uh, between 1950, 1945 and 1950, and didn't have time or space to fit them into, into the, the dissertation of the book, so I just kind of saved them for later, and then when this essay contest came out, um, I thought, you know, I think there's actually some, some connections that we can make from these exercises that took place in 1947 with the current situation and the emphasis on training and preparing for great power competition. Uh, so, I ran across some of the records in Iron Archives and then some of the records in Australian Archives. And so, I was able to kind of, in some places, get both sides of the story. And so, that was neat to see.
1: Okay. Well, why don't you go ahead and set the table of uh, what went on in 1947 off Japan, how it came about, and what was derived therefrom for the navies involved?
2: So the, the British uh, and the United States and Australia all had a small naval contingent that was assigned to the occupation of Japan. It was called the, the support force and or this consisted of two support groups, this occupation force. Uh, the occupation, of course, was primarily a, uh, you know, a ground effort, but there, were, there was a naval component. And so uh, these uh, support groups, cruisers and a couple destroyers uh, from each of these navies, were involved in escorting Japanese shipping, patrolling Japanese waters uh, in the, during the occupation. But at the same time, they're still responsible to maintain their combat readiness. And so the uh, commander, uh, Vice Admiral Griffin, uh, and then later on his successors, uh, and some of his subordinates also uh, clearly made an effort in particular in 1947 to prioritize uh, training opportunities and to take advantage of training opportunities. And so, at the risk of oversimplifying, their approach seems to have been that if a military unit, whether that was an Air Force unit or a B 29 squadron uh, or an Australian or a British task group, was coming into Japanese waters, they wanted to take the opportunity to get together and to do exercises, whether those were complicated or simple, with that incoming unit. And so they uh, took as many opportunities as they could, exercise. Um, put together three of these exercises in the summer and the fall of 1947. And in doing so, I think demonstrated considerable amounts of initiative and uh, seizing opportunities as they came upon them. So they uh, there's three sets of these exercises. They tended to involve some element of uh, air attacks on surface forces, uh, combined with fighter interception and anti-aircraft defense uh, training ex- uh, exercises, uh, as well as usually then some sort of surface component. So a nighttime surface engagement or a destroyer escort group that's trying to intercept um, a carrier at night. So they had these uh, and they uh, put them in uh, in serials was what they would call them. They'd have a, a serial or a series of these exercises that would take place. And they uh, the British and the Australians in these training exercises would adopt American signal books and communication books. And so this was a good opportunity for them to practice using U.S. Navy publications, as well as an opportunity for the U.S. Navy to practice operating with allies and partners who, in the event that there was, you know, a conflict or a war that broke out with the Soviet Union, uh, the expectation generally was that the the British and the Australians in particular uh, would be on the U.S. side in such a conflict. So that's kind of just an overview of some of the what goes on in these exercises and how they uh, uh, can have some relevance for today.
0: So how did the atmosphere of the post-war military inform this exercise? Because this is about the same time that the U.S. Air Force is being created. DOD is becoming a thing. There's a lot of tension between the Navy and this fledgling U.S. Air Force around procurement priorities. The revolt of the admirals happens So everybody's thinking that the next conflict is going to be nuclear. So is that part of these exercises
2: as well? That, that, that priority scheme? So I think the, the thing that strikes me looking through these exercises reports is actually the absence of inter-service conflict. Uh, You know, certainly, as you said, uh, Ward, there's, there's plenty of battles going on in the Pentagon and in Washington, DC about roles and missions and budgets. Uh, But when you look at, the units that are involved in these operational exercises, that's not what uh, they're focused on. You know, they have missions that they're trying to perform. These are training opportunities that are presented. And so they're, they take advantage of them as they are, uh, as they're coming forward. So uh, they don't have a, spe- a specific nuclear component where they're testing out, you know, like the impact of nuclear weapons on surface ships or on aerial operations, uh, but they are certainly taking place against the backdrop of increasingly tense relationships with the Soviet Union. So there's growing concerns about Soviet military capabilities, Soviet intentions, Soviet spying in the United States and in Canada, some of those revelations are starting to come out, more will come later. Uh, And so it's in this midst of increasing tension uh, that these exercises take place. Uh, There's also concerns about the, the Soviet ability to draw upon capture German uh, military uh, technology and to benefit from, say, German Type 21 submarines and concerns that the advances that were demonstrated in those submarines would be incorporated into Soviet submarines. And they were, although later on, um, happened more in the 1950s. And certainly, you know, those concerns about growing military technology and growing military capabilities of peer competitors is something that's still with us today.
1: There's always an element when you see one of these sort of joint fleet ops in a sort of potential um, hotspot, if you will, that there's also an element of a show of force there for the other side. We see that uh, in our current time um, from the Baltic to the Pacific. Um, Was there some element of that in this case, this emerging Cold War? Um, I mean, it's it's sort of for uh, what if the Soviet Union dot, dot, dot. But it's also they're watching this, too. Is it, do you, or is that just sort of a side effect of the larger thinking behind doing it?
2: I certainly think there was an, an interest in demonstrating a ready and a present and a forward-deployed naval capability on the depart uh, of the United States and, and the British in particular. You probably see that most with the British Pacific Fleet, which is their major naval presence in the, in the Pacific at this time. Uh, Some of the ships in that fleet were tasked to this operation or to the uh, the occupation support group. And then others would operate around the Western Pacific, but would usually for a season come up to Japanese waters and exercise with the Americans. Uh, And so certainly one of the reasons that they're coming up to Japanese waters is to show the flag and to demonstrate presence and to demonstrate an ability to operate with the United States and to highlight those close relationships. So... You don't see specific references to those in the exercise documents. They're not saying we're doing this to show it, to, you know, show the Soviets what we're capable of. But I think it's a safe assumption that that's a, a benefit that they see to doing these types of exercises and taking advantage of these training opportunities. Certainly one of the reasons that the Air Force is sending B-29s to operate from Japan is for that presence and that posturing that you mentioned, Eric.
0: So what was the dynamic between particularly the British and the Australians, was there an inherent lead follow thing going on there, uh, you know, colonials versus the empire? Was there any of that kind of stuff they had to work through uh,
2: for this crucial bilateral exercise after the war? So the, the Australians and the, the British are, at this point, are very used to working with one another. Uh, the Royal Australian Navy has been having its personnel serve in uh, Royal Navy formations for a really long time, they've been doing that ever since early 20th century. So there's very close relationships between the two. Uh, The the Australians are using primarily, almost exclusively at this point, British warships, uh, and the Australians are integrated into the British command structure. So there's one exercise actually in which it's an Australian captain who's in charge of the overall British support group. there were also Royal Navy officers who were on loan to the Australian Navy to fill in some of the billets that the Australians uh, themselves didn't have the personnel to fill. So overall, the, the close uh, relationship between the British and the Australians is certainly on display. There had been uh, certainly had been tensions during World War II in which there was a perception on some folks in Australia that the British had not provided sufficient means and sufficient forces to help defend Australia, particularly in late 1941, early 1942. Um, but the Australians themselves, uh, post-World War II, are interested in trying to pursue a defense policy that roots them firmly within the Commonwealth and within the United Nations. So they're also interested in maintaining close ties with the British.
1: What was the other side doing in terms of um, naval training exercises in this early Cold War period? Do we see much of it on the other side as well? or?
2: So the, the Soviet Navy in this period uh, is very much a coastal defense force. Uh, the assumption on the part of the United States and the British as well was that the in the event of war with the Soviets, you know, in the late 1940s or the early 1950s, that there'd be a third battle of the Atlantic and the Soviets would send a large submarine force to interdict supply lines, uh, both in the Atlantic and the Pacific. We have learned since, and, you know, Norman Freeman and Roman Polmar have uh, found evidence of this, that Soviet naval capabilities were much more focused on defending the approaches to the Soviet Union and defending Soviet coastal waters. So uh, the Soviets themselves are, uh, they're not doing, you know, big exercises like they would in the 1970s with things like Ocean Safari, where they're operating in multiple oceans at once. Mm -hmm. From the Soviet perspective, uh, they're still trying to recover from the Second World War, which has been a massively devastating social economic and military experience for them you know yes they were on the winning side but the cost of doing so was incredibly high Uh, and so the soviet navy is certainly not the top of the priority uh, even within the soviet military as they're trying to rebuild after world war ii
0: so you mentioned the presence of b-29s and there's a fun fact at the beginning of the article about mig-15s and the fact that they used rolls-royce engines i did not know that um Any, but there's no mention of any specific aircraft carriers in the article. So, was there a carrier task force presence at all? Because again, talking about this era, there was some concern, and that understates it, about what was the utility of the aircraft carrier in this new world where the principal capability was the, you know, the the using of nuclear weapons potentially right? And this is why, again, the the Air Force is created. They're like, hey, you don't need that USS United States. You got B-36s, right? And uh, Forrestal jumps out the window and all these other things happening. is pretty chaotic period around the Pentagon. So again, how did this exercise reflect any of that? And again, were there any aircraft carriers in these exercises?
2: So there is one carrier in one of the exercises. The Antietam comes up to Japan for a period and so it's part of one of the exercises uh in in, in the daylight exercise that it's involved in the antietam air group uh, tries to launch an air attack on a uh one of the british and australian support groups they actually end up misidentifying and they go after a british mine layer instead of the, the heavy cruiser they wanted to go after um and then that night the antietam is uh, is intercepted by a couple of british sorry a couple of us and australian destroyers in a night torpedo exercise. Um, so that's the one exercise in which a carrier is present, but it's only present because it's visiting. There's not a there's not a permanently deployed carrier in Japanese waters. Uh, the Pacific fleet at this time, I can't remember the exact number, it had something like two or three aircraft carriers overall, usually with the goal of usually having one forward deployed in the Western Pacific under the seventh fleet. And so there's usually one carrier at a time that's available um, it's uh, So if we fast forward a couple of years, by the time we get to 1950, it's the Boxer, and that's what's doing exercises. Uh, the, the Boxer does exercises with the British aircraft carrier, HMS Triumph, early in 1950, and it turns out the Boxer is going to operate uh, with Triumph uh, later on after the Korean War begins. Um, but in, to your question, and to your point about demonstrating the utility of aircraft carriers, That's something that the Navy is certainly interested in doing. One of the ways they do that in 1947 is they send the Pacific Fleet Carrier, one of the Pacific Fleet Carriers, the Valley Forge, um, it's on a Western Pacific cruise, and they say, well, we want you to actually go all the way around the world. So they go through the Suez Canal, they go through the Mediterranean, they go up and visit Britain and Norway, come back to the East Coast of the United States, go through the Panama Canal, and eventually return to the West Coast. And how do long it. did that
0: cruise last? That, that must have been a year plus. I mean, that was a pretty long deployment.
2: Yeah, it, it was definitely, I can't remember the exact number, but it was over six or nine months. Yeah, it was a big deployment, uh, but they didn't plan it that way. You know, the cruise begins and then they decide, okay, we want to demonstrate this capability. So it's kind of a, um, it's a short notice change. I, I certainly would hate to have been the supply officer on the Valley Forge um, to try and figure out how to, how to make that happen but that's one of the ways that the Navy is trying to demonstrate the continued utility of aircraft carriers by showing their mobility and their uh, ability to move into areas and to demonstrate presence.
1: As Ward mentioned, that's very much a 1947 thing for the Navy, uh, wanting to do that very thing, prove the viability and continued relevance of the carrier. Um, Well, your, your piece is about the relevance of these um, interfleet fleet uh, training operations to today's scene. But maybe there's um, a relevance as well with the uh, carrier debate. Um, that seems to be something that uh, never all the way goes away. Um, and the role of carriers in any future scenario in uh, that part of the world is something that is talked about quite a bit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Let's get to some of the things that are relevant about what they learned in 47 to what we're looking at uh, with these sort of things today, with uh, you know, working with other fleets to train in a hot zone and what we deploy in that and all that sort of thing.
2: In terms of uh, you know, specific ways in which the Navy trains, I think one of the things that uh, these exercises and the folks who organize these exercises did well was to focus on specific elements that they wanted to practice. So underway replenishment, uh, or night surface torpedo attacks, or fighter direction. So they had specific things they identified in advance. Here's what we want to accomplish during this exercise. And I think having that level of specificity and that clarity about what is it that we're trying to achieve, you know, would, would certainly be something the Navy would benefit from today. Uh, these exercises are also all um, what we would call training exercises. They're not testing new doctrine, new tactics. Uh, they're trying to give commanders and command groups amounts uh, of free play and the ability to demonstrate creativity and initiative. And I think all, there again, the Navy would benefit from being clear about what is it that we're trying to achieve in specific exercises. Is we trying to develop doctrine or are we trying to give commanders the opportunity to demonstrate initiative and to take risks and to exercise uh, their prerogatives as commanders. So I think both those are two ways in which uh, these exercises still have relevance for today. In terms of the, the role of aircraft carriers, uh, I, I tend to think that it, it's easy to highlight the threats that new weapon systems can pose to aircraft carriers. And that was true in 1947, and that's obviously true today, You know, with long range hypersonic missiles and things of that nature. Um, but there's always there's always a response. You know there's always new technologies and new techniques that can come along that can counter or degrade the impact of the, some of those systems. So uh, I, I'm always hesitant uh, for those who say that you know this new technology is going to totally revolutionize warfare and undermine everything that's come before. I think there's often far more continuity uh, in these things, and so we should be slow to necessarily divest of all of the systems that have been proven successful.
0: While I claim there was no aircraft carrier in the uh, article, there, there's a lovely picture of the Antietam, as Corbin mentioned, pulling into Yakuska. So um, apologies for not seeing the obvious aircraft carrier in the article. Uh, the other question, Corbin, is how did these bilats? Because you know, in modern times, we talk about how bilats influence tactics. Right. That that's that was the problem. We're like, oh, we're going to cancel this exercise with the South Koreans. Uh, and, we're you know, in recent years, we're like, well, hold it. That that training is uh, unrivaled in terms of what the takeaways can be, not only working with that. Ally, but just what we learn about working, period. So were these, uh, you know, informative, innovative with respect to that kind of uh, changing of how we did business
2: so i think the these exercises are certainly much smaller in scale than things like uh you know the exercise with the south koreans or talisman saber with the australians these are much smaller scale exercises and so they don't have the level of visibility and political implications or sensitivity that some of those exercises do today there's also a difference in just in terms of uh what is seen as normal you know today it's seen as normal and um you know the united states exercises with allies and partners all around the world on a regular basis that was less so uh in the period right after world war ii uh it was you know the the navy and the army and the air force as well um as they were being more and more forward deployed for the cold war found themselves operating more and more with uh, allied militaries and so there was a sense in which it, it was not as much an established practice, uh, and so I think as a result it also received less attention. Uh, at the same time, you know, the United States, uh, especially in 1947, is not giving. Uh, if there is a, pr- uh, a primary focus for the Truman administration, it's Western Europe, uh, and so the Pacific is kind of a, a second um, priority after that. Um, and the occupation of Japan is, you know, is the the, the focus. Of the it's certainly a high priority item in the Pacific, uh, but these exercises are not rising to the level where they're making the national news or things like that.
0: Plus, MacArthur is not communicating with Truman all that much, so uh, I'm sure he was happy to not focus on the Pacific because that meant he didn't have to deal with MacArthur. But
1: that's right where things exploded on Truman in 1950, isn't it? So
0: yeah, well, it's he kind of picked the wrong to, to focus I, on. I didn't realize that MacArthur didn't go stateside for 13 years, right? He was basically the Viceroy of Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing, so we're mentioning the, we've talked in passing about the Korean war. So the Korean war did a couple of things. One is it solved the, what are aircraft carriers for problem, which took it out of the strategic nuclear sort of, we need to be a player in that. And that's where everybody's getting fired up about USS United States and that getting canceled in the air force and, and, Budgets and DOD, now you only have one pool of money where you used to have the Department of War and the Department of the Navy with separate budgets. All of this was happening at the same time. So now Korean War solves that sort of question of what are aircraft carriers for. You mentioned Valley Ford and Boxer. Now they suddenly get it. Oh, okay, it's to support close air support that it's operating in the littorals off the coast. And so that became kind of the race on deter for aircraft carriers in perpetuity from that point forward. So, you know, that that's part A. But the other thing about MacArthur is he never spent the night during the entire Korean War, never spent the night in Korea. Even when he was observing the Incheon landing, he just went there for the day, had the binoculars on, like, okay, looks good. Let's get back to Tokyo, you know? So um, there's a famous meeting and there's some cool pictures of he and Truman getting together at Wake, Right. And, and that's the first time they'd seen each other for a long time. And it would also be the last time they saw each other before Truman was called on the carpet to get fired. Um, you know, when, at the final, that's when Truman actually did return to America was so he could get fired. I'm sorry, MacArthur. So he'd get fired by, by Truman. But at that meeting, Truman asked him, hey, what about the Chinese? And MacArthur, in his usual cocky way, is like, ah, don't worry about those guys. It's good. And literally by the time MacArthur got back to Tokyo, 300,000 Chinese came across the border and that's where we had the Chosen Reservoir campaign. So all of this is happening against the backdrop of your article, right? And, and so this time of 1947 is a time of great change. And it's amazing change because you would have thought the platforms and the tactics that carried the day in 1945, or let's just say for World War II, certainly should have been self-evident going forward, but they weren't. It's like almost like overnight, we lost our identity. And so these bilats were important in reforging with our allies. What does the American Navy do? And in so doing it, we reminded ourselves what we did, right? So this is kind of like the halftime show period of the U.S. military more broadly, but particularly U.S. Navy. And, and so do you see anything in that where you know, the, the Navy's kind of finding its identity once again through these exercises with the Brits and the Australians?
2: Well, I certainly think the Navy is is definitely taking advantage of the opportunity just to practice, practice uh, basic skills and, you know, basic maneuvers, you know, like underway replenishment and torpedo attacks at night uh, or aerial interception. And part of that is a, a desire to practice because of the massive personnel turnover and the massive demobilization that has occurred, which has really caused a lot of problems for the Navy in terms of retaining skilled, trained, and veteran personnel. And so, you know, in in several places during these exercises, the British or sometimes American commanders will comment on the standard of, say, communications procedure or radar reporting on American ships, not quite being what it was during the Second World War. And that's you're seeing there the result Of demobilization and kind of working through these personnel issues. Um, I certainly think, in terms of the, uh, you know, you mentioned aircraft carriers in the Korean War, you know, the United States, uh, you know, the U.S. Navy certainly has the largest and the most expansive naval aviation capability of any Navy during this period. Uh, And there's a sense in which that causes, you know, a healthy rivalry and a healthy competition with the British and the Australians. So during the Korean War, there's a United Nations task force that operates off the Korean West Coast. And that has a rotation of a British or an American and then in one one period, an Australian aircraft carrier where they will go out, uh, operate for a couple of weeks, come back to Sasebo and then uh, swap out. And the British and Australians are regularly trying to beat each other and beat the Americans in their daily sortie count from their carriers. So there's one case where, I can't remember if it's Glory or Triumph, gets over 110 sorties in one day Uh, which is a massive amount for these light aircraft carriers. So uh, these bilateral relationships, you know, even in some ways help improve operational performance, you know, through these healthy uh, sense of rivalry and healthy competition.
1: I I concur with Ward that this is a fascinating and often overlooked period of U.S. Naval history in uh, 1947. I mean, that sort of post-World War II, dawn of the Cold War chunk of years there is just, it's fascinating in many ways and uh, next year, uh, 2022, happens to be the 75th anniversary of that. So you can stay tuned for more in Naval History Magazine next year about this time period as we, we're gonna um, take a deep dive on it um, as the year gets on. Um, and I commend you for um, having an essay that plunks itself right down in the heart of this period that um, has kind of been on our minds too. Uh, I also wanted to congratulate you again for winning this, and um, ask you how your life has changed since you won uh, the CNO Naval History Essay Contest.
2: Well, I don't know that it's changed dramatically. I mean, I've I've still got the same parking spot and all that um, here at the War College. But uh, um, I was, uh, you know, very honored to to receive the award. And you know, there's a bunch of great folks who put in essays uh, for this year and for previous years. Uh, And uh, I also probably should, you know, I certainly benefited from the fact that we've got a couple uh, U.S. Navy captains who are on the faculty here at the War College. And so I got to talk to them about, you know, some of the, the training challenges that the Navy faces today and their feedback and their comments were really helpful in terms of putting together the last section of the essay about recommendations and practices for the Navy and how it might benefit from the experience of these exercises in the 1940s. Well,
0: let's talk about those. Uh, you've, sure. you've, you've hit on some of those, but let's, because Eric mentioned applied history at the outset. So what are some of those recommendations that you make?
2: I think pr- probably the one, uh, uh, as you said, I mentioned a couple. The one that I don't think I have mentioned yet is uh, the importance of continuing to emphasize training and preparing uh, for operations, you know, maintaining combat readiness in an era when there are increasingly high operational demands and which underway time is precious and in high demand. Uh, you know, the operational demands on the Navy today are just incredible. Um, you know, every combatant commander wants to have you know, a carrier task force or an expeditionary strike group, uh, you know, at their disposal. And so in an era when uh, underway time is as precious as it is, I think it's even more so important that the navy continue to emphasize training and preparation giving commanders the opportunity to demonstrate free play to work with components you know air surface and subsea or subsurface uh, components working together and having opportunities to train together you know that that's certainly something that comes out in these exercises every chance they get to incorporate the far eastern air force or the antietam's air group you know they're taking that opportunity to not just have surface exercises but to have multi-domain exercises. And I certainly think that's something you know, that the Navy uh, would benefit from continuing to emphasize today.
0: Right on. So we mentioned that this that Corbin won the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. I will say um, in a totally irrelevant comment that I ran into the CNO at the Army-Navy game, and he has agreed to be on the Proceedings Podcast in the near future. So I'll tease that out uh, since we're talking about the CNO. Um, the article is Season... Seizing the initiative in training. Our guest has been the winner of the CNO Naval History Essay Contest, Corbin Williamson. Corbin, thank you for the time and thanks for beaming in from uh, the War College.
2: Well, Ward and Eric, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's always a good day when I get the chance to talk about Naval History at the Air War College.
1: You're here. here. <laughs> nice to have you on. Thanks again.
2: Thanks.
0: All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute and we'll remind you that this and every episode of the podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. For more on that, please check out usni.org join. Eric, we've had our second live stream episode. Let's declare victory and, uh, and go home.
1: It's been a large charge, Ward. Look forward to the next one. All right. Take care, my See friend.